This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, Buzz Bissinger celebrates the 25th anniversary of Friday Night Lights. Then PW editorial director Jim Milliot previews PW's Star Watch. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So we have a new number one, and it's right. not what I expected, because I knew that Jonathan Franzen's Purity right. was coming out, getting right. tons of buzz, great American novel, etc. Um, but no, uh, Purity is at number three, and at number one is The Girl in the Spider's Web by David Lagerkrantz. And I'm like, who's David Lagerkrantz? It, it turns out he right. is continuing the Stieg Larsson series, the Millennium Saga, uh, right. best known for The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Wow. And that explains why this is number one with a bullet. It actually sold sold about twice as many copies as Purity, um, way up there at the top of the list with 53,000 copies Incredible. and counting in hardcover. We gave it a starred review saying that this is Legercrantz's worthy, crowd-pleasing fourth installment in the late Stieg Larsson's Millennium Saga. Uh, it opens in Sweden, predictably, uh, and some intellectual property developed by an artificial intelligence genius has been stolen by a video game company. So very modern contemporary uh, plot. And uh, he introduces some new characters, uh, including Camilla Salander, Lisbeth Salander's twin, uh, and sets the stage for further millennium novels. Uh, our review says that his prose is more assured than Larson's. He keeps Salander's fiery rage at the white-hot level her fans will want. Oh, wow. That's so. interesting to to say that about uh, a writer who stepped in uh, uh, in the series. You don't often hear that. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I mean, I think Larson was sort of known for his the plotting and pacing and characters, maybe right. not quite so much for prose quality. Right. So, yes, but it really sounds like this is uh, an excellent continuation of the series and fans will be very happy with it. Uh, so down at number three, of course, as noted, is Purity, but Jonathan Franzen. Uh, we called it an exhaustive buildings roman. It's uh, it's very hard to not know something about this book. It's been written about and talked about so much. But in brief, uh, there's a young woman named Pip just out of college, um, saddled with crushing student loans and struggling with uh, her relationship with her mother, who refuses to reveal the identity of her father. Mm. And uh, we say gradually it becomes clear that Franzen's greatest strength is his extensive, intricate narrative web, uh, including a murder in Berlin, stolen nukes in Amarillo, and a billion-dollar trust. And the novel lacks resonance, but its pieces fit together with stunning craftsmanship. So uh, that's what we've got at number three. Number four, um, this is another surprise, Aftermath by Chuck Wendig. Uh, This is a Star Wars tie-in book. And uh, this is the the beginning of the Force Awakens series. So um, 
people have been having really strong feelings about this book in the Star Wars world. Um, there have been many, many, many books written in the Star Wars universe, uh, kind of extending it beyond uh, what happened in episodes four, five, and six, you know, the original three Star right. Wars movies. And all of that continuity has been set aside. That is now the book universe, the book right. continuity, and the new movie is going in a different direction. So fans of the original Star Wars books have been very upset about that decision. Uh, that you know, we're not going to see the, the familiar characters. Uh, we're not going to enjoy the oh. stories written by Timothy Zahn and other right. big big name authors who are writing those books. Um, and some of that anger, I think, uh, injudiciously has been directed at this particular new Star Wars tie-in, uh, which partakes of the movie continuity. So they're kind of like sweeping things clean and starting all over again. Um, and uh, you know, this particular story uh you know seems to be very popular people are reading it and uh reviewing it on its own merits places like amazon and goodreads right. are saying it's great um the people who are concerned with uh, what we could call the politics of it uh are are less happy there are queer characters which uh, have not been seen in great numbers in star wars before right. um you know, it, it's shaking things up in a lot of ways. So meeting with a, a mixed reception, but that isn't stopping it from selling very well. Right. Uh, yeah. It's at number four on our list, much higher than you'd usually see a, a movie tie-in. Yeah. And interesting if uh, we didn't have this uh, Stig Larson continuation or Jonathan Franson, where, where that book might be. Yeah, it, it would. Uh, it's it's definitely up there. It's actually just barely behind Franzen in sales numbers. They've both right. got just over 26,000 copies right. sold. In, in their first week out. Yeah. So that's very impressive. Yeah. And uh, at number six, we have The Solomon Curse by Clive Cussler. Um, this is a new Clive Cussler. It's the seventh Sam and Remy Fargo adventure, and we call it Perfunctory. Uh, it's co-authored with Russell Blake, their second book together. And uh, it takes the husband and wife treasure hunters to Guadalcanal, um, and uh, they're searching for treasure that was uh, pulled underwater during a tsunami back in 1170 mm -hmm. CE. And uh, we say the snappy patter seems forced. The exotic location is neither very exotic nor appealing. And a number of side plots distract from the main action. Uh, so yeah, that one uh, may not be of interest to anyone, but Kustler's fans, but of course he has quite a number of those. Right. Number seven is Undercover by Danielle Steele. Um, this uh, this is a thriller. She sometimes writes more literary or romantic stories, but this one's definitely uh, got the, the thriller plot uh, about an ambassador's daughter who's kidnapped and a former undercover agent who comes to save her. And right. uh, presumably there is a romantic thread between those two as well. And uh, moving down the list a little bit, number 10, Dark Ghost by Christine Fian. Uh, this is uh, part of her Carpathian series, and uh, she's been writing paranormal novels since uh, time immemorial. A long, long time. <laughs> she's really one of the originators of the um, what we now think of as the, the urban fantasy and paranormal right. romance genres. Uh, and uh, this one pairs up a vampire slayer uh, with uh, actually a geologist who's wandering around in the Carpathian Mountains looking wow. for uh, a particular precious crystal. 
And uh, so, you know, strong romantic plot and uh, probably a little bit of series continuity for those who've been following these books. They've been going, this is number 28. I just saw in, that number. In the Dark yeah. Saga. It's like really impressive. Wow. Uh, moving down the list a bit, number 17, Archmage by R.S. Salvatore. Um, this is uh, actually a pretty big deal. And uh, in, decades ago, Salvatore uh, created the character of Drizzo Erden, who was uh, a dark elf from the Dungeons and Dragons universe. Mm. And um, his novels were incredibly popular, really interesting. So this anti-hero figure. And this is the start of a new series um, with the, uh, the same characters following them along on a series of new adventures. Uh, and we didn't cover it because uh, PW doesn't cover tie-in books, but uh, you know, the, the copy is certainly glowing and uh, it'll be you know, so far you know, with about 78 ratings on Goodreads, it's still over four and a half stars. Wow. So um, you know, obviously the fans are really, really happy to see him coming back and uh, continuing that series. Great. And finally, at number 27, I uh, just wanted to mention Girl Waits with Gun by Amy Stewart. Uh, we give this a starred review. It's a hilarious and exciting period drama set in 1914 in Patterson, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. uh, we called it an elegant tale of suspense, mystery, and humor. Uh, hardened criminals are no match for pistol-packing spinster Constance Cop and her redoubtable sisters. And uh, you know, it just sounds like a really fun ride. Uh, it's a surprising family secret. A kidnapped baby and other twists consistently ratchet up the stakes, resulting in an exhilarating yarn. Oh, fantastic. So that wraps up our fiction side. What have you got over there in nonfiction? Uh, topping the um, debut list, number three, is uh, Dick Cheney and Liz Cheney with Exceptional Why the World Needs a Powerful America. So uh, a former Vice President Dick Cheney, he's the also best-selling author, and his daughter, Liz Cheney, who's the former uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, uh, explained the unique and indispensable nature of American power, according to the copy. So that's at number three, getting lots of attention, lots of sales. At number eight, we have a book on football called The End Zone, The Rise, Fall, and Return of Michigan Football by John U. Bacon. Uh, this is a story about uh, college football's arguably most successful and really richest uh, program. And that's at number Number eight, and later on in the show, we have a uh, Buzz Bissinger who wrote about high school football. So this is just in time for the football season now. And uh, arguably the success of Friday Night Lights opened up the potential for lots more football books yeah, to, sure. yep. to come in and excite the fans. Yes, exactly. And at number nine, this is one of the first times in a long time, actually, or that we've seen a cookbook this high on the mm. uh, nonfiction, not just the cookbook, but general nonfiction list. Uh, it's at number nine. It's called Magpie uh, by Holly Ricciardi. It's the sweets and savories from Philadelphia's favorite Pie Boutique. It's by published by Running Press. And when you think of of what cookbook might make it, you 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 would think of some of the big names or some of the big chefs. But here is this Philadelphia, this 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 very popular though not necessarily nationally known pie boutique. And we can thank that sixty seven hundred copies and sales wow. to QVC. 
Oh, so interesting. QVC. So I'd been when I saw that on the list, I was wondering how. I, I mean, yes, I knew it was a good cookbook, um, or at least solid cookbook. People have been talking about it, but but to bump it up to six six thousand seven hundred copies, uh, it turns out it was QVC. That's really interesting. So uh, I bet a lot of other cookbook authors and publishers are looking at that and thinking, hmm. Maybe we can we, follow in their footsteps. Yeah, well, I think QVC. It, it it's tough to get on the uh, uh, to to have your book placed on QVC. Yeah, so, I imagine. So something about that. Uh, I do know that there's a connection. Obviously, QVC is filmed in uh, is is filmed in Philadelphia. So, oh, I so there's that. A, uh, well, that's something that mm-hmm. just occurred to me just now. Uh, so thus the connection. <laughs> that's very interesting. And at number thirty-two, we have Oliver Sacks's memoir, "On the Move: A Life." It's an autobiography, and of course, he, he had just died uh, two weeks ago. So uh, that's what we have at number 32. And we, we gave, gave it a star. A star. Mm-hmm. We did. Yes. Uh, we say Sax's writing is lucid, earnest, and straightforward, yet always rapidly attuned to subtleties of character and feeling in himself and others. I've so. been reading some of his last columns. He really narrated uh, his life all the way to the end. It's so powerful. He really did. There was some, some, some of the most beautiful writing right at the end. Mm-hmm. So I'm not surprised that people are grabbing for that book. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Buzz Bissinger tells us how he changed the nation's conversations about football. We'll be right back. I'm Naomi Jackson, author of The Star Side of Bird Hill. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Buzz Bissinger in the office for the 25th anniversary of his groundbreaking book, Friday Night Lights. Hello, Buzz. I'm so glad that you're in the office with us. Well, you know, this is the Citadel for authors, so it's kind of uh, awesome to be here. It's actually pretty cool. I'm oh. really glad that you're here. So, um, really, 25 years. That's yeah. that's amazing. Uh, it, the book still seems as fresh and relevant now as it was then. How, do, how does the passage of time on this feel to you? Well, you know, time goes quickly until you think about it. I mean, I was 34 years old when I wrote this book. It was the first book I'd ever written. And the fact that we're here talking about it 25 years later is freaky and um, amazing. You know, I'm now 60 and I didn't really know what I was doing, perhaps, although I knew I had a great story. This book has somehow become timeless and iconic. And I appreciate what you say. I think it is as relevant today as it was 25 years ago and maybe more so because our obsession with sports is worse than ever. And we had just been talking before, I- I- exactly, and especially football, and, and now at the college and high school level, especially in the South. And right. and what is also making this uh, so fresh and relevant is the many iterations that the book has had in its TV <laughs> series, movies. Um, it's It's pretty amazing that it's still, again, the same themes are being played out in high school's across the country. Yeah, and listen, if they made a musical of Hamilton, they could make a musical of Friday Night Lights, right? Like, like I'm waiting. Right. Right. Friday Night Broadway Lights. Yeah, no, the curious right. incident of the... What am I, chopped liver? Right. No, it's, it's, it's incredible. I mean, you know, just when you think that the, the phrase Friday Night Lights would, would die down, then the right. movie, and then the television series. And we were talking about this, to have three distinctively really, really quality iterations. I go back to M.A.S.H., 
which was fantastic in all three right. iterations. I mean, mm-hmm. that's really unheard of. And once again, you know, flattering. And I think it's cool. You know, so what do you think about movie television show? You know, they're all different forms. It's why yep. books are great. It's why movies are great. And it's why TV shows are great. And we all succeeded. So, so the 25th anniversary, this is, uh, you're going to be starting on a book tour. You've, right. you're on so many radio TV sh- shows right now this week. Um, but it was a much different feeling when the book was published 25 years ago. I mean, it was met with controversy. A lot of controversy. And, but there were even, uh, what I heard, death threats. I mean, what was that time like? What was happening? Tell us about what happened when the book well, was Well, I mean, out. you know, the book was controversial. I knew it would be controversial, not what, because I was looking for controversy, but because I saw very, very disturbing, shocking things in terms of the excess, in terms of high school football being out of control. I mean, you know, high school football is part of our cultural heritage in America, but this had gone beyond all bounds. I'm a journalist. You have to write about it. The city of Odessa, the town, went crazy. They were livid with me. The team I wrote about had gotten kicked out of the playoffs. It was not related to the book, but they blamed the book, and I was supposed to go down and do signings. And Several people, many people called the bookstores and says, you know, we'll kick the Friday Night Lights out of him. And I know Odessa, they're spirited, they're independent. I have a lot of respect, but, you know, that can happen. And they said, we do not want to be responsible uh, for safety, and that's why it was canceled. Uh, Why were they kicked out? Uh, They were kicked out. They were turned in by the, you know, so it was was a crazy frenzy. They were turned in by the other high school in town for starting summer practice early. So the town was going nuts because you have to remember, kids have waited all their lives to go to the playoffs, but not just kids. That's not the problem in many ways. Parents. They had waited all their lives. This is their shining moment. And to be deprived of that, and then there's this book, it it was pretty wild. I mean, it was pretty, pretty intense. So, um, as you said, you were in your mid-30s when the book was published. Uh, It was your first book, but you'd already won a Pulitzer for your investigative reporting for the Philadelphia Inquirer. How did you come across the story of this football team, the idea that there was something there worth pursuing? You know, I'm I'm asked that a lot, and I'm asked that a lot. I just started teaching, and students want to know, where do you get your ideas? And you get your ideas subconsciously, and you get your ideas from the heart. When I was 13 years old, I read an article in Sports Illustrated. I love Sports Illustrated. I love sports. It was written by the great Dan Jenkins about a high school quarterback in Abilene, Texas named Jack Mildren, who was the most sought-after recruit in the country and was playing in front of 15,000 people on a, on a Friday night and was the Elvis Presley, the Marilyn Monroe, the god of the town. And I was mesmerized because he wasn't that much older than I was. Mm. And that stuck in my head. Then I was very moved and affected by the last picture show this isolated Texas town in which the only thing where they gathered together is is high school football, desolate, lonely. And that really got into my soul. And then it really kicked in in the mid-1980s. I had uh, been on a Neiman Fellowship at Harvard and had some time off from the Inquirer and drove cross-country. You take the Southern route. You mm-hmm. go through Louisiana, Texas, Alabama. Main Street was was obliterated. Small-town America was, was obliterated. Right. Uh, but then you go a few blocks out and you would see these high school stadiums a lot of them built in the wpa beautiful immaculate shrines i said these these are shrines you know it was like a eureka these are shrines these are temples to people's hopes and dreams on a friday night this is where every person in town gathers to root for 
they're teenage kids. So it's that oasis of grass in the middle of the desert. Yes, exactly. So, and, and that's definitely was definitely true of Odessa. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So you have the the idea of the of the high school football and, and this team in Odessa. How did you know there was a story there, or, or what? What kind of research? Who did you start talking? Well, to? Well, you know, you don't. I, I will say, I had an agent at the time, Michael Carlisle, who was very helpful. I spoke right. to Michael, and Michael said, "You know, it sounds great, but you got to find the town. Where are you going to do this? You know." And I realized right away, you got to do high school football if you're going to do it. You got to do Texas. It's so synonymous with Texas, and I knew some of the lore. And it wasn't very scientific. I spoke to some college recruiters. I actually spoke to a guy named Ernie Adams, who was Bill Belichick's right-hand man with the Patriots, and I'd gone to Andover with. And they all said, go to Odessa. And I said, why? They said, just go see it as a legendary team. It's in the middle of nowhere. And I remember a guy named Bill Reese from UCLA said, go look at the stadium. You know, so I drove out there, and it's, it is, you know, a town is bad when other Texans make fun of it. Mm. It is in the middle of nowhere. It's it's gritty. It's oil country. It's roughneck country. And you drive out, and it's flat, and it's ugly. And you go out, and you see this stadium that was built in 1985 for $5.6 million, which is a lot of money. 19,000 people. So you did 19,000 people. Artificial surface feel. The only place where they skimped was they did not build an elevator to the two-story press box. <laughs> that combined with the team that was legendary then and the winningest team in Texas state history and had a Cinderella quality, and I knew had a good chance to do well, I said, this is it. I will say, Odessa's not a quintessential small town. It's about 90,000, but it's so hermetic and so isolated that it just felt right. And as a writer, you want adventures. You right. want, you know, people say, was it weird? No, it was great because when you're writing a book, when you're writing anything, you want everything to be fresh everything to be new because your eyes never got get stale everything is my god my god and it was an incredibly stimulating year it was fascinating um a lot of stereotypes i had broke down but i did also know that i was gone after a year if if i had been there for you know an indeterminate amount of time i would have gone nuts right mm. uh, and what were the stereotypes that you had before going there and hicks. what was there right hicks. okay these are these are hicks yeah these are Texas Hicks, and I and I found the kids that I wrote about to have soul, mm -hmm. to have heart, to be completely authentic, which is really rare in American life and really rare on the East Coast, frankly. And mm. I'm, I'm from New York City and had a life of extreme embarrassing privilege. They said what they felt. There, w there was such a soul to them, such a character to them, and they were smart, they were interesting, maybe not very well educated because the school system was pretty lousy then, and you don't find that many places. O o Odessa was the most authentic place I've ever been, and part of that authenticity was saying, we're going to kick the crap out of this guy because he harmed us, and he sold us a bill of goods about what kind of book he was going to write. So did you really um, sort of go in there and say, I'm going to praise you, the skies, and then... Turn around, or it was that was just sort of what they assumed. I, 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 I never used the word praise from what I knew. You got to remember, I go in open ended. I right. do not know what's going to happen. And but, I, don't. I mean, that seemed more likely I from don't. an investigative journalist standpoint. They knew standpoint. my credentials. They knew I'd won a Pulitzer Prize. And this is a pretty media savvy football team. You know, mm -hmm. if you're going to state and winning state, you're covered all over the state. There had already been a book written, a very glowing book. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I thought it would be much more of a Hoosiers-type experience. I, I, I remember writing the proposal, and I thought the key, you don't know, is that there was this black running back, Booby Miles, who would lead the team to the promised land, 
which might be interesting because the black population was very, very small. But, you know, stuff unfolded that was disturbing, shocking. Racism, when I got into the school, the academic priorities were really screwed up. That's not to say they were bright kids, but there was really no motivation. There was very little teaching. Those who taught were completely discouraged because of football. Mm. And football had devoured that town. And, you know, when, when people, you have your notebook open, and people look at you, and they use the N-word, and they're not using the N-word nicely. There's no way to use it nicely. Well, what are you going to do? Yeah. You, you, you say, you I'm sorry? What do you, read the, read them the Miranda warnings? And, you know, it wasn't <laughs> like I was hiding behind bushes. And it was prevalent. And, you know, you report. They didn't de- desegregate the schools until 1982 by court order. They didn't want to. Well, you, you, you can't ignore that. Right. And you you gained what seemed like unfettered access to the players, the coaches, the parents. How how did you gain their trust while keeping that kind of journalistic distance? Well, you know, I, I gained access before the season. I went down and visited the coach and visited the, the athletic director, who was a former coach, and uh, visited certain members of the school board. So I had the access. You know, you're a journalist. You don't play your hand. You know, you don't because mm-hmm. you shouldn't. So when someone is saying something that is shocking or you discover something shocking, I'm not going to play my hand because the purpose of the access is to get people to act themselves. Right. So if I say, well, you know, and, and some people you talk about desegregation, some people you talk about the impact of racism, but no, I didn't, I didn't play my hand and, and journalists do that. That book has been dissected for, what, 25 years. Yeah. They've, you know, they may, they may disagree with the emphasis and the emphasis was exactly correct. There has not been a single fact I know of that's incorrect, except I did spell the name of a minor character wrong. It was Stony with an E, and I forgot the E. Dissected, looked at. Um, I've been back to Odessa not for an official book tour. Uh, they kind of like me now. Mm. The worst thing is they say, there was a book? <laughs> what book? You know, I say, well, I started no. it. And the weird thing is, the interesting thing is, I put that town on the map. Yeah. It is the home of the Friday Night Lights. Now, granted, the, the movie was a softer version and the TV show was, but, you know, so they should be thanking. I'm not going down there to seek, <laughs> I'm not going down there to, to seek forgiveness. Right. This is not the forgiveness tour. I can argue that they should forgive me for what they put me through. They should, um, they should seek forgiveness or, you know, from Booby Miles for what they put him through. They should be embarrassed by the monster they created, just as they just as they have made real, real change. But this is not a goodwill tour. I'm not going to back down. Well, you know, let's talk about uh, Booby Miles, who you right. wrote about uh, in in the follow-up to the After Friday Night Lights. Uh, the subtitle, I just want to read, When the Games Ended, the Real Life Began, An Unlikely Love Story. Talk to us about Booby Miles. Uh, he was right. the central character in Friday Night Lights and was right. one of the people who you stayed in touch I, I don't know yes. did you stay in touch or yes. did you re-get, regain we, touch we, we always we always did stay in touch it accentuated more after his beautiful uncle what a what a beautiful man died in 1988 really the kindest most decent man I think I've ever met and by the way in the 25th anniversary edition there's a very extensive new afterward that right. um, gets everyone up to date on the players that Great. was important to me in terms of completing the circle and also important to me emotionally so tell us about Booby Miles first well, you know, Booby, Booby's the, I, I don't like to use the term because it sounds dismissive and I love Booby and Booby is a hell of a lot more self-aware than people ever thought. Booby was and is the poster boy for everything that's wrong about sports in America. Booby was considered and looked at as a, 
I've said it before, but I don't know what other term, a football animal. Mm -hmm. A human being who had no worth beyond playing football. And that was said to me. I remember asking an assistant coach, a really good guy, an enlightened guy. I said, what would Booby be with football? And he said, you know, a big, dumb, old N-word. A coach. But that's how they thought about him. Mm -hmm. He got no education. He had a tutor, and he pretty much got all the answers to tests. He was getting A's. He He got paid to play by a booster. Junior year, go to his locker room. Every Monday, there'd be an unmarked white envelope with as many yards, uh, dollars for as many yards as he had gained. Well, you know, he's, he's broke. He's poor. He gained 305 yards one night. That's 305 bucks. That's a lot to a kid. Well, you're not going to concentrate on academics. Right. You're not, you're not being encouraged. They, they put him in special ed classes, and he, he had special ed needs. But, you know, he was writing at a third grade level. And I've seen bo- boobies written me letters that are eloquent and smart. They had no faith in him. But he was the big ticket until what happened so many times, he got hurt. Right before his senior season in a meaningless preseason scrimmage, he got hurt on a meaningless play. It wasn't even a hard hit. He blew out his knee. His season was done. Plus, what always happens is there are too many t- They found someone better. Mm. They found someone better off the bench and didn't care. They didn't care about him anymore. His life was over. Life is over for a lot of these kids, particularly inner city kids and minority kids, because that's how we value them. Mm -hmm. Your only worth is as a basketball player, as a football player. And if you don't make it, so what? You know, we don't care anymore. So I knew that Booby's life was going to be very, very hard. He had a high level of frustration. He went to junior college to play football. It didn't work because he had lost that second millisecond of speed. He was a fantastic... He... Watching him run, and I always saw it on tape, watching him run with such joyful abandon, his physique, he was sort of like a LeBron James. He was he was a man among boys. Mm-hmm. It was beautiful to watch. And all that was taken from him, and his life went downward and downward. And, you know, to say, when I interviewed him in April, he's in prison. Mm-hmm. He's serving 10 years for aggravated assault. He was up to 420 pounds. He's now back to about 360. His head is good. There's a, a great self-awareness. There's a sadness to him. He's much too hard on himself, but it was hard. And I kept up with Booby a long time. And we have a very complicated, intertwined relationship. And uh, I've given him help financially. We split the proceeds of After Friday Night Lights, which was an e-book about him, because I think that was only fair. It didn't really help. It's hard when you're given a lump sum of money. And, you know, I'm like that. I mean, I spend a ton of money on weather. You know, you get a lump sum and say, whoa, you know, every author does that. I heard about an author who got a lot of, uh, uh, I won't mention the name. He got a lot of money. He had a huge book party. And he realized he had no money left. Um, I love Booby. Seeing him was was hard. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. And I love him and he loves me. But he's the poster boy for what to me is the essence of the ultimate tragedy of, of, of sports in America and it happens all the time. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Buzz Bissinger, author of Friday Night Lights, about the book's 25th anniversary. Um, so this book really shifted your career. I mean, yes. it, it, uh, it's very indelibly associated with your name. Did you expect that to happen? 
All I know is is that I had great training at the Philadelphia Inquirer, which was it was the heyday of newspapers. There was no newspaper like it with a great Gene Roberts. I had written a lot of what we call takeouts, very long stories where I began to learn about narrative and, and developing plot and characters. And I also realized that has nothing to do with writing a book because it's very, very different. I knew I had a great story. Mm-hmm. I knew I had a story unlike any other. I remember a, a wonderful editor I had at Vanity Fair, George Hodgman, saying, the key is to burrow into a subculture, to get underneath the skin, underneath the surface, and tell people about a world, even if they thought they knew something about it, they really don't. And I did that, and I knew that. As I said, to be talking here 25 years later, to have written something that has become iconic, to have invented a, a, a title, although actually Jane Isay came up with it, to, to invent a title that is used everywhere. I should have should have uh, trademarked it. Yeah. I could have used some advice <laughs> right. from you guys, actually, because then I'd be doing the radio interviews and I'd be doing it from some palace in Las Vegas. Uh, no. But I knew it was a great story. And the, yeah, the X factor, the, the fear was, would this translate outside of Texas? Hmm. They thought they could sell 20,000 copies in Texas. They sold a lot more. And then it swung out of Texas. And then other bookstores picked it up. What I didn't realize, and I think it's the, a primary reason for the sex of the book, success of the book and why it's still successful is how many people identified with the book. Not the bad stuff. That was my high school. I remembered kids like that. I was a kid like that. And what I remember most of all is the beauty and the power and the darkness of the Friday Night Lights. I mean, I've had hundreds of people say, hey, that was my school. Doesn't matter if it's New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Wisconsin, you know, Minnesota, North Dakota. That was my high school. And that I did not really anticipate. Hmm. And so after, at what point did you leave the inquiry? It was a, not, then. right then. I went on leave and never came back. I remember right. Gene, the great Gene Roberts saying, so what? Where are you going? Where's Odessa? What are you doing? That's ridiculous. No one's ever going to talk to you. You know, you're a Jew, little Jew from New York. They're not going to talk to you. And what are they going to say? They're a bunch of hicks. And he, he loved me and discouraged me. And I said, you know, it's in the union rules. You've got to give me leave. Hmm. And I went out there with, I had a book contract. It was not nearly what I was making. Uh, and I went out there with my lovely twin boys who were then five and my then fiance. And... After that, the book came out, and then you started. Uh, then you were a contributing editor for. I right. mean, for I guess it was Vanity Fair. Yes. Yes. Uh, but you'd also wrote for GQ, later Deadspin, right. and other right. places. So. I didn't quite write for Deadspin. Deadspin excoriated me because I was on the Bob Costas show, and criticized the internet and bloggers. And I'm still right. getting emails saying you're a fool and we hate you. <laughs> but <laughs> they were tough. Deadspin. Right. Let me just. Yeah. Tell you, they were tough. I sort of liked them that, yeah, but yeah. boy, were they tough. Oh my god. Wow. And, um, you know, just this year you wrote for Vanity Fair. You got this big celebrity scoop of Caitlyn Jenner's transition. How did you land that? Well, it, it sort of traces back to much of what has happened in my life, which is great. But I had problems with it, for, you know, Friday Night Lights, because uh, there was a sports connection. Uh, I'd written, I'd written I a, 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 a comic book about sports. Obviously, Caitlyn Jenner had been a great um, athlete. As it turned out, there were other personal connections Um as well, and then you know, Graydon Carter, when he looked around, felt I would be the right person for it because of the sports connection, and because I'm really an old style, you mm-hmm. know, reporter. I, I believe in reporting things out, and whether I succeed or not, I wanted to give that story an extra dimension. So that's why you talk to the kids. That's why you talk, um, you know, to the wives to to try to 
burrow underneath. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. What what was um what was that experience like? Did you end up Bizarre. working the sports angle, or did it just were you sort of diving into this Kardashian no, because, celebrity well, world? Well, it wasn't much Kardashian. It wasn't much sports because I mean, what was interesting about Caitlyn is that as Bruce completely minimized the accomplishment. Mm. I remember going into into. And I say his, not dismissively. I, it's always hard. But when he was an Olympian, mm-hmm. or she was an Olympian, he had no memorabilia. Nothing. I actually helped him move because he's very cheap and he wouldn't hire a mover. So he's got this, <laughs> this little guy helping him move. I said, come on, you know, this is ridiculous. He said, shut up and move. He's got a very good personality. He's very open. And I remember taking some vases and, and, and books off a bookshelf. And there, you know, on the... On the corner of the bookshelf were the, the iconic Wheaties box. I, I remember that. that and I was... said, do you know that's there? He said, oh yeah, I, th- I think it was there. And I said, Where, where's the great American flag you carried when you went? I, right. don't, I don't know where it is. I mean, he completely minimized it. We had an interesting connection in terms of, obviously, he was going through a profound transition. But I make no bones about it. You know, I like to cross-dress. I've had a fascination with, with women's clothing and, and, and leather, and this is a part of my life. And so there was you know, that bond. I think mm. most of the time we wanted to talk about shoes. <laughs> uh, but there was that bond in terms of, wow, he is going through something pro- so profound. And I've gone through something profound in my life. It's about difference. And I, he's had an interesting impact on me. Actually. So it she, was. I'm sorry, she. I shouldn't say that. So it was really two things uh, that that enabled you to to get access to right. Caitlin uh, both the sports angle but I think more immediately the the piece you did for GQ yes. of being a shopaholic and as yeah. you mentioned before spending yeah half over half a million well, I, I will say because I interviewed her Chris Jenner was much more interested in that piece than Caitlin Jenner was because mm. you know they're they're they yeah. have, they've coined the term but yes I mean you know they, they, they it's interesting I don't think they'd read the piece um, Really? When I showed up, but then they read the piece and they right. said, wow, this is, you know, this, this, he knows something. Right. He knows a little something about what Caitlin has been going through, you know, all her life about, you know, and it's different because gender is not, you know, transgenders, the gender is not tied to sexuality. For right. me, you know, I say it, women's clothing has been a sexual turn on. I think the phrase is autogenophilia. So there was a big difference, but he... At the very least, this guy knows about difference. Mm-hmm. This guy right. knows about how profound difference is and how difficult it is. It's not easy in this country. In Europe, it's very, very different. You know, I, there, these are actually, you know, I'll wear men's shoes with a four-inch heel. And, you know, the looks I get are endless. Mm-hmm. Endless. Like, what, you know. And I've worn, you know, wear a lot of women's clothing. And I've worn women's boots and mostly, you know, women's pants. And in Europe, not a big deal. It would be unisex. Right. But here in this country, it's it's hard. But, you know, Caitlin has been profound for me because more and more I say, screw it. Yeah. I, I, I want to be myself. You know, I don't wear a dress, frankly, because I don't look very good. Um, <laughs> I've tried it, and I don't look good. Right. My, my wife and I have taught. It's no secret to my wife. It's no secret to my kids because, you know, it's all the stereotype. Yeah. What, what does it mean to be a man? Right. What does it mean? Because of what you wear? Right. What does it mean to be a woman? What what does that really mean? I mean, I think those those are just terms that have become increasingly um, arbitrary. But you know, and and the worst are the white heterosexual males because they're tight. I, I think I think they're all homoerotic in their own way. They're scared to death of anything out of the norm. The comments I get in my clothes: women love what I wear, right. and minorities love what they wear because they have a great sense of flash and and style. But these 
arbitrary labels that we give, this is why I talk about it, because I think it's wrong. I hate going into clothing stores, women's section, men's section. What, who the hell cares? Women may like clothing that is defined as men, and may, men may like clothing defined as, as women. Do you watch Game of Thrones? Look at those yeah, outfits. Those right. outfits are fantastic. <laughs> I mean, what the hell happened? What who, the hell who happened? Who wouldn't want to You're wear right. those dresses? I know, right? but what, yeah. you know, the, the, the men look so hot. I mean, what the hell happened? And the transformation is really interesting because these, these, are, these are, I think, almost economic terms and yeah. social terms, religious terms. And, you know, Caitlin has done so much to, to bring the notion of sex change, transgender men and women into the conversation. It's talked about. It's thought about. And I think that's great. And um, she has emboldened me to talk about it because I don't like the barriers because I think they're completely artificial. And, I, you know, I think there is more of a connection between this and, than, and football than some people might draw because so much of sports culture is about keeping those walls up and keeping right. those rules in place that men, men do this thing and men take right. the tough hit and they don't cry. Yeah, they, they, they take the tough hit and, and don't cry. And they're men. I mean, what Caitlyn Jenner had to, had to put up with all, all her life was, you know, I'm supposed to be a he-man. Right. I'm, a, I'm, I'm the greatest athlete in the world. I saved the American team because I remember those Olympics. We right. got clocked. And that was the day of the Cold War where right. the Olympics really counted. Yeah, it really mattered. Um, as Bruce saved the Olympics. But when you, you hear her talk about giving speeches, talking about the Olympics and winning and the dedication and, and sitting there and saying, I am such a fraud. Mm. I am not who I want to be because everyone expects to me be mom and apple pie. And he was gorgeous. Mm. He, you know, we, yeah. I I hated him because he said that guy <laughs> was just any woman. He, I mean, geez, yeah. he's perfect looking, and he's a great athlete. Um, but you know, he defined the the difficulty in this country of going against the stereotype of the athlete. You know, right. I've spent a lot of time in in clubhouses, and I think clubhouses are are incredibly homoerotic, which I think is really cool. But they're terrified of any kind of expression of it, which is why it's so hard to be openly gay. And, you know, who cares? You know, who cares? So then there's the sense, well, if you're gay, you're not a, you can't be a, a good athlete, which is ridiculous, right. which is apps. But there's so many boundaries and stereotypes in, the, in this country. And then you hear, you know, people talk. And I was on Morning Joe yesterday, and the previous guest was Mike Huckabee, who's mm -hmm. offensive Yep. and ridiculous and talks about the republic as if it's his republic well it's not my republic and you know trying to get FaceTime out of out of this endless endless um invo invocation of, of god and this ridiculousness and the supreme court does not define the law it's abhorrent but beyond abhorrent it it continues to define artificial stereotypes which can be very different because imagine caitlin jenner not having done this mm. and i imagine in my own life i mean you go crazy. You go crazy. I mean, it's a part of you. And, and I need some outlet. And obviously, in her case, much more intense. She needed, it wasn't desire. She needed to do this, but had to wait 65 years to feel it was safe. Yeah. And you've, you, you've described yourself just, just a while ago as this little Jew from New York. Uh, who are they going back to Odessa talking? But with it, you obviously, like, in gaining access to them, you obviously have brought a certain sense of perception or a certain sense that what you see isn't what you get. Right. I mean, is that it's how you exactly is right. that how you get? We both realize that yeah. they had they had a, you know I showed up I think the first time I was in a 
so like 105 degrees i'm in a, in a tweed jacket with with elbow <laughs> right. patches and loafers as well, the they, reporter, they, they as looked at me reporter. and said where the hell has this guy come from mm-hmm. and he's an idiot and they have east coast stereotypes mm-hmm. and i had west texas stereotypes but i like people and i, I like talking to people because I find in, inevitably that every stereotype of have is wrong and they found that their stereotypes are wrong. We, we bonded. They were curious about me. They were interested about me. I was interested about them and then, you know, in terms of writing the, the great access can be a double-edged sword because I learned in this case you're going to hurt people that you like often or maybe you get too embedded with, with your subjects and don't write what you have to write. But the reason for the access you know, is to be there. Mm-hmm. The most important thing I did was to be at every practice, not be, to write about it. I mean, practices are boring after the yeah. first practice, but they would have early morning practice, 7 a.m. And I realized they were watching to see if I was there. Right. Mm. And because I was there, they said, oh, you know what? This guy's committed. This guy's going to do it. And that's the reason for, for access. The other reason for access and the other reason I lived there for a year is because when I wrote, I could write with authority. I, I knew that town. I lived in that town. My kids went to school in that town. And you need to write with confidence. You need to write for with authority to be honest. You know, you can pipe it. You can wing it. A lot of writers do because they want to make money or it's, or it's thinly disguised screenplays or treatments for movies. But in my case, I was grounded and, and trained and taught as, a, as an old-style shoe-leather reporter. That's what, it, what it, it was about. It wasn't about point of view. It wasn't about edge. It wasn't about having lunch with a celebrity and defining and summing up their lives in some you know, bow, which is done all the time today. We've been talking with Buzz Bissinger. You can find his book, Friday Night Lights, in stores right now. And finally, you'll be able to see him on tour as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, this is great. This I, really, amazing. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank yeah. you. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about rising stars of the publishing industry, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Elsa Hart, the author of Jade Dragon Mountain, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us all about PW's Star Watch 2015. Hi, Jim. Hello, Rose. Hi, Mark. How are you? Hello, Jim. Always nice to have you here. So um, tell us a little bit about what Star Watch is and how it connects to the Frankfurt Book Fair. Uh, okay, thanks. Um, well, yeah, it's something that uh, the Frankfurt folks came to us just before BEA, and they've been doing a similar project with the bookseller over in the UK, mm-hmm. which is you know the, P- the PW of the UK, and it's used to identify up-and-coming talent in the publishing industry. Mm-hmm. So uh, what we did was, I mean, we've done something similar along the lines a number of years ago. We called it 40 Under 40. Right. Um, we didn't put a firm age bracket on, on this one so I think a couple of people may have been a little over 40 but it, the principle is the same is going out there to look for um, people that actually uh, their colleagues and competitors if you will um, identified as you know up and coming talent 
And is this just uh, just publishers, people in publishing, or is it throughout the entire? I mean, like bookstores or or um, media groups. Who are we right. looking? No, who are it's we throughout. Looking? You know, the the whole book selling and publishing uh, ecosystem, if you will. Um, and I think we have four or five booksellers who who made the list this year, including one of our finalists. And we have editors, designers, new media people. Um, so I think it represents a pretty good range of of people in the industry. And we didn't put um, a cap on how many people would be our honorees, is what we're calling them. So we end up with 40, which uh, initially in my head we were going to do 25. <laughs> um, but then we got so many great nominations that, um, you know, we expanded it. And who I I think there were people who are, are organizations working with or who who uh, at least suggested people who, right. Who well, they? well, this was actually um, it was I guess you could call it self-nominating. We we didn't go out and solicit nominations from anybody, or we didn't say we think blah 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 should be you know should be an honoree. We opened it up to the industry, and we received over two hundred and fifty nominations. Wow, which we were pretty happy with because. It came about a little bit late, you know, it was after BEA in June, so the nominations basically closed uh, at the end of July, and then since then, uh, we had five judges, somebody from PW, somebody from the Frankfurt Book Fair, mm -hmm. we had representatives from the ABA, the AAP, and we needed a technology person, so who else do you turn to but Richard Nash? Richard <laughs> um, and that was the, the judging committee that, uh, you know... Um, winnowed down the, the list from 250 to the 40 we have. And so you've, uh, this is going to be a, uh, a news item and a feature in Monday's issue. It's going to be, we... yeah, sorry, it's going to be in Monday's issue. Um, we have profiles on all, all 40 honorees. Uh, I, we're pretty confident that will be an annual event. We hope so because you know, the response was, you know, very, very heartening to us. And, not surprisingly, I guess the honorees are very happy. Sure. Um, so I think it's going to be a feel-good event. And Great. we've got some that we uh, labeled, or there's one that we labeled a superstar. Tell us a little bit about that accolade above the rest of right. the accolades. So, you know, we tried as best as we could not to make it a real contest, but we did want to reward some people for the people from participating. So Frankfurt was good enough to give an all-expense-paid trip to the Frankfurt Book Fair this October for whoever we designated. And the uh, person this year was, is uh, Helen Yantis. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. Um, she's the uh, art director for Riverhead Books. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. Well, so well, that was wow, Mark. Um, because, you know, we thought maybe it'd be an editor or right. some, you know, hotshot uh, digital um, innovator or something. But the consensus formed pretty quickly around Helen um, that, you know, she's very innovative in the design work she's done. Um, they're very well known throughout the industry, a real up and comer and really loves books. Wow. That's great. So um, this is, there's going to be a, a ceremony on the 16th, I think, September 16th. Right. Uh, yeah, just uptown a little bit. I forget the name of the restaurant. We'll be having an event, uh, a little bit of a cocktail party, but also a ceremony where all the honorees who can make it will be there. Um, we'll announce some of the other finalists who are there. 
Uh, I think the Frankfurt Book Fair folks are giving Helen some award, <laughs> uh, a little thing, maybe a plane ticket. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it should be good. I, I, again, I think it'll really be a feel-good thing that, you know, as we wrote in our introduction, you hear so many naysayers predicting that, you know, the doom and gloom of publishing is around the corner. But when you read these, uh, all the profiles here, it's a bit inspiring about how passionate they are about uh, the jobs they do, how much they really like it. And, and the different you know approaches they take to, to publishing. Yeah, and and as you said, especially coming off years of what seemed to be doom and gloom—not recently, but before—and uh, here we are. We're still we're still here, going strong. <laughs> right. Well, as as Helen says in her um, interview with us, that you know, it was 2009. It was like you know, print is dead, and all right. the art directors in, in the city and in the industry thinking we're not going to have a job now. Right. But you know, six years later, um, many publishers are more committed than ever to making the printed book, you know, something that people really want. Right. It's true. And in Frankfurt, will there be an event in Frankfurt for? There's going to be a, a bit of an event, and they'll, uh, I think they'll take her around. I'm sure they'll take good care of her about and show her the ropes on what's going over in Frankfurt. Right. And oh. a lot of these folks also you know, volunteer, work outside of their their jobs to kind of promote books and promote reading. Um, did did any stories particularly jump out at you? Yeah, I, I think it was almost uh, rose the the scope of how committed everybody is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Jessica Bagnulo, who's the co-founder of Greenlight Books here in Brooklyn, and one of our uh, five finalists. Um, you know, she's really involved with all parts of the Brooklyn community. And you hear stories like that throughout throughout the industry. Um, uh, Diana Kay is a publicist based in Chicago, and she's determined to uh, turn Chicago into a literary hub. So she started a number of different programs and like annual and quarterly events where people can get together. Um, so you see these people are really, really believe in the value of the book right well that's wonderful thank you so much for coming on to tell us about them and uh, we'll definitely keep an eye out for the full set of 40 profiles which is very impressive in, uh, in monday's issue great thanks a lot take care and now a final word from our sponsors i'm naomi novik author of uprooted and you're listening to publishers weekly radio And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another juicy author interview, and we'll also have lots more insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 